Welcome here. Um, yeah, thanks, team. We're, we're just rolling in hot today. I've got to find all my stuff and hope that my phone isn't still in the car. Well, you know what? I guess need you to run out and check. Sorry, babe. Okay. Do you need the key? The key's probably in this. Okay. Um, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 6 today. 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, we're Netflix binging. Uh, first, first and Second Samuel this year, and so we're kind of heading back into Second Samuel and getting that done. So First Samuel chapter six is where we'll be together, and we're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to have a few um, Bible Project podcast nerd out moments. So be prepared to learn more about the city of Jerusalem than you thought you would learn today. Um, as we get into it, so. First uh, Samuel six. We're actually going to start in First Samuel five. Hold, why don't you go ahead and throw that sucker up there, so that it's ready to go when my wife comes rushing back in to my aid. Look at her, isn't she great, ladies and gentlemen? The woman who holds Regen together, Stephanie Tennant. <laughs> Somebody said, "What does your wife do at our at your church?" I said, "She does everything. She keeps it going." We're going to be in 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Okay, so I've done my part, Holden, so it should say, allow me to join. Move over to the left there and click the join button. There it is. Click that. Boom goes the dynamite. Ladies and gentlemen, Holden Garrett, holding the church together too. Okay. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 1 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to look a little bit at 1 Samuel chapter 5 because in it, it, it gives us a little bit of King David's resume. If you remember last week, um, we looked at David becoming king of Judah, but having to wait seven and a half years before he could unite the kingdom. Right there at the end of last week, we saw David unite the kingdom in the early parts of chapter 5. And as you go into the rest of that, we see this chapter that arranges, not necessarily chronologically, but thematically, uh, David's accomplishments in his early years as king, his accomplishments in his early years as king. So uh, a few things that are interesting in David's early reign uh, include uh, removing the Jebusites, uh, people group within Israel from the land in accordance with the Torah. The Torah, the laws of Moses, said that the Israelites needed to remove the Jebusites from Israel. They didn't. And by David removing them, he shows himself in accordance with the Torah. And if you have a discomfort about the removal of a people group from the land, I would refer you back to some of our sermons in 1 Samuel where I just made it even more confusing. Um, David builds a palace uh, in the early parts of chapter 5. Uh, it calls, it's called a house, but kings don't live in houses, my friends. They live in palaces. And so David builds himself a palace, and he does that through an economic alliance with a nearby economic juggernaut, uh, the Phoenicians or the Tyrites. Um, David has an heir. His name is Solomon, which ensures his family's reign. He goes to battle with and routs the Philistines who have been the bad guys, the antagonists all the way through First and Second Samuel. But all of this pales in comparison to one little note here in Second Samuel chapter 5 that says, David took the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. David takes possession of the city of Jerusalem. He makes Jerusalem the political capital for his kingdom. 
And he selects Jerusalem intentionally. Jerusalem is, uh, has valleys on three sides of it, so it's very easily defended. It has its own source of water, which is a very valuable resource uh, in the ancient Near East. David uh, also chooses this, and let me see if I can zoom in on this for you, because wouldn't that be fun? Watch. Watch the power of technology, people. So um, here is Jerusalem. Uh, you see kind of there in the bottom left corner, it says Jebus or Jerusalem. It is located on the north-south axis of the kingdom in the same way that Washington, D.C. is located on the north-south axis of the early colonies. When, when the founding fathers chose Washington, D.C., nobody else is in the room when it happens, is a little quote from Hamilton for you, but uh, they chose Washington, D.C. because it really was associated with no one and therefore belonged to everyone. When David chooses Jerusalem as his capital, he is choosing a place that belongs to no one and therefore everyone. He chooses Jerusalem, and from this moment on in Scripture, from this moment on in Scripture, there is an obsession with the city of Jerusalem. There's an outright obsession with the city of Jerusalem uh, in the rest of the Old Testament. For example, um, entire psalms are dedicated uh, to the city of Jerusalem, and the, the reason Jerusalem plays so strongly in the mind of the Israelites is that God promised in the books of Moses to choose a place where his name would dwell, that he would dwell among them. That place becomes Jerusalem. It is a highlight place for the Israelites in the whole Bible because it shows the fulfillment of God's promises in the past, but it also anticipates God's work in the future. Um, in Jerusalem, we find a new Eden. The Garden of Eden is a mountaintop garden where the heavens and the earth overlap. There's kind of this thin space. And Jerusalem, from a certain perspective, is a, is a new Eden. Um, Psalms, like I said, are dedicated to the city. Psalm 135, verse 21 says, Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Jerusalem is geographically and spiritually vitally important to the work of God. Its primary importance isn't geographic, it's spiritual. And yet the Bible, over and over again, names Jerusalem as a place important to salvation. It is Jerusalem that Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. It is Jerusalem in which Jesus is tried and found guilty. It is Jerusalem from which Jesus is cast out, and it is in the shadow of Jerusalem that Jesus is crucified. One day, Jerusalem will be the center, ground zero, for our salvation. Isaiah 25, if you're following along in your Bible, you could flip there. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain, what mountain? Jerusalem. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. On this mountain, on Jerusalem, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away our tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This mountain is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem plays a role in the book of Revelation, the book of last things. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the kingdom, you will not live in heaven, you will live in the new Jerusalem. 
there is one place of geographic importance to God, and it is not the United States of America. It is Israel, and most importantly, Jerusalem. One day we will all have citizenship in the new heavens and the new earth in a place called the New Jerusalem. And what you're going to see, um, by the way, I loved that song for today because it kind of tees up some stuff. Jesus is the root, is the root of David, is, is, is David's root. He is the offspring of King David. And here's what we're going to see in First Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 6. The nerding out is almost done. What you're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is the closest thing to a vision of heaven we have gotten yet in the Old Testament. The closest thing we've ever seen to heaven in the Old Testament. Because here's what you're going to see. You are going to see Jerusalem with King David worshiping in the presence of God. You're going to see Jerusalem with King David worshiping in the presence of God. When we get to heaven, we will be in a new Jerusalem worshiping under the reign of David's root in the presence of God. We will be worshiping in a new Jerusalem under the reign of David's root, under the root of David's offspring in the presence of God. This is the closest we get to heaven. I didn't say this in the last service because I didn't want it to distract, but I think I can trust you. Uh, One of the things that David is accused of in this text is dancing naked before the Lord. He's not quite naked. My gut suspicion is that we will be naked and unashamed in heaven. Clothing is a result of the fall. Before, before sin entered the world, we walked with God naked and unashamed. And so I even think David dancing the way he does before the Lord's presence in 2 Samuel 6 anticipates that. Jesus, my gut suspicion is, was crucified naked, that he took even that shame on himself. Um, and that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't walk ashamed anymore, and it'll be a good thing. So why am I slow playing this? You and I will spend forever in the city of Jerusalem, in the city of David, in the city of Zion, We will dwell forever in the place that God has chosen his name to dwell. And we are looking at all of this because it is a a fulfillment of God's promises in the past and an anticipation of what God is going to do in the future. So with that in mind and that nerd out done, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, which says this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. You know, the house of Abinadab on the hill over there by 422 and 305, like we know where that is. And Uzzah and Io, not Ohio, Io, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and I went before the cart. In 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, in the early parts of that narrative, the Philistines sack the tabernacle and they take the ark of the covenant, which is the location of God's manifest presence. This object has no magic power. Its only significance is that God's presence is near it. Um, they take this object, they take the ark of the covenant and they take it into their territory and things go very badly for them. So they set it on a cart and they send it away and it ends up in a town called Kiriath-Jerim or here in 2 Samuel, Baal Judah. David, having established Jerusalem as his political capital, is now going to make Jerusalem his spiritual capital as well. It is not going to be the play, only be the place of Israel's political and military life. It is also going to be the very center of their life with God. The Ark of the Covenant uh, is 
is given to Israel at uh, Mount Sinai. It's the tangible expression of God's presence among them. It is the footstool of his throne. Think about that for a second. What we're saying is that if we had this golden box that's about yay by yay uh, in this room, we would be saying that God is big enough that only in this room fit the bottom of his feet. We actually sang a hymn at Grace that calls, um, it says the canopy of his throne room is space itself. That God is so large and enormous that only the bottoms of his feet are really found at this footstool. Only the high priest uh, is permitted to look at the ark or touch it. And when the ark traveled, when the ark traveled, it was to be carried on poles on Levite priest's shoulders. Which is why when we're reading uh, in these verses that they put it on a new cart. When they put it on a new cart, uh, if, if we had like totally ingested uh, the Hebrew Bible, the way the Israelites had, we would have gone, uh-oh, right? Or in the words of Star Wars, I have a bad feeling about this. So they take the Ark to Jerusalem, they put it on this car, and it is a fanfare. And it is. It, 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 this is not just a parade. This is a royal parade. This is like the crown on Netflix level stuff. This is the king in his beauty taking up, fulfilling his promises and moving into the city where he's going to take his name. And, and here's the thing. It is loud, and there is singing, and there is dancing. The text says that they went with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets. I like that. And cymbals. This is a celebration. This is a, this is a royal parade. And so there's this dancing and the celebration and the loud music. And in the midst of the din, in the midst of the noise, in the midst of the celebration, one of the oxen that's pulling the cart stumbles. And the, and, and the cart on which the ark sat rocks a little bit. And as it rocks, the, the ark of the covenant goes to the left and to the right and sways back and forth and looks like it'll fall. And so Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, reaches out to steady the ark, and the minute his hand touches the cool gold of its side, he falls down dead, and God removes his life from him. And 2 Samuel 6, verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. I love that verb. It's like we can't contain God. He broke out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Look at the emotions just in these verses. The Lord was angry. David was angry. David was afraid. The Lord is angry to be treated with such little regard. Do you really think that the God who speaks oceans into being and galaxies into being, the God who separates sea for Israelites to walk through it, the God who provides them with food every morning, do you really think that he needs a hand to steady the ark? I think he can handle that himself. The text says that David is angry, and the object of his anger in the text isn't clear. The object of his anger isn't clear. Is David angry at Uzzah for his foolishness? Is he angry at the Lord for this perceived injustice? Is David simply angry for the first hiccup in his meteoric rise to fame? 
What we do know is that David is afraid. David is confronted with the holiness and ferocity of God's power, and he says, can the ark of the Lord come to me? David leaves the ark in a nearby town called Obed-Edom, and it stays there for three months. And verse 12 of chapter 6 says, It was told to King David, Yahweh has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Wherever the ark is laid, wherever the ark stays in Samuel, it brings blessing to that house. And actually twice in chapter 6, it tells us that blessing came to the house of Obed-Edom. Listen to me, where the presence of God is, there is blessing. Where the presence of God is, there is blessing, period. Where the blessing of God is, where where God's presence is, there is blessing, period, period. It was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom the king, and all the Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, more partying, more celebration. And two things that I don't want you to miss here. First of all, they get it right. It says those who bore the ark had gone six steps. See, they figured it out. David's first attempt to get the ark goes wrong because they did not pay attention to the holiness and presence of God. And so they get it right the second time. But as the party is continuing and all of Israel is singing and shouting and celebrating and they bring the ark of the Lord in Jerusalem with the sound of trumpets, David, David is wearing an ephod, it says. That's the garment of a priest. One more Bible nerd comment. Can I make one more? In the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham meets a guy named Melchizedek, who is the priest of Salem. The priest of what will one day be Jerusalem. David takes that priestly mantle in the line of Melchizedek here and acts not only as king, but also priest as he wears this ephod and sacrifices things. And David, listen, David is dancing, the text says, with all his might. I, I don't know if you knew this. Some of you might not. We, I just got back from Cuba a few weeks ago where we dance and worship. And not like white boy dancing, right? Go, you, I have some great videos, okay? I'm talking dancing. You know, I'm talking like I would do this with Guillermo like five minutes at a time. I'm talking if Audrey and Guillermo might come up here either for a Wednesday night or a Sunday uh, at the end of February, uh, we're going to need to amp it up uh, just a tiny bit. Do you know what I mean? Because there is dancing, right? There is celebrating. This is the presence of God. But listen, in any party, as David dances and celebrates, in any party, there's a wet blanket, or in the SNL skit where it's Saturday Night Live. Have you ever seen those skits with Debbie Downer in them? They're at a party, and they're all having friends, and they felt compelled that they had to invite their coworker Debbie. And while they're all partying and sharing things, Debbie says, my cat just got diagnosed with feline leukemia. And they all stop, and then there's always a boom, boom. Go home, Debbie Downer, SNL skits. We're about to meet the Debbie Downer of this text in verse 16. It's Michal, the daughter of Saul. I'm going to kind of walk through this really quickly. Now, the Ark of the Lord, this is verse 16. The Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, 
looked out through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Michal is named not as Michal, the wife of David, but Michal, the daughter of Saul. It indicates where her loyalties are. She's not on Team David. In fact, when she sees him, she doesn't say, my husband. She calls him the king. The voice of Saul still echoes in the halls of the royal palace. Verse 17, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place, in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings. Again, he's acting as a priest. And peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. On your way out, please don't forget to get your cake of raisins today. Then all the people departed each to his house. David, again, operating as a priest. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, again, notice whose team she's on, not King David's, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This gets intense fast. David returns, the daughter of Saul, comes out, greets David, not by his name, but by his title, how the king, she says. And she accuses David of being a little bit tawdry, a little bit risque, of essentially flashing the young women. Because here's the deal, the ephod that David is wearing, the robe, is just a little short. And this is before the invention of the tidy-whitey. And so as David is dancing and leaping and doing all of these things before the Lord, the skirt, the, the, the bottom of the hem of his robe is riding up and everybody's kind of seeing what's going down underneath. And so Michal accuses David. See, again, I'm saying some of you think it's weird to raise your hands in worship. I'm just saying it can get weirder. And, um, and, and, and David, and she accuses David of having a, like a sexual intent, a sexual motive. It couldn't be further from the truth. Verse 21 And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. Now watch this sick burn. Are you ready for a sick burn? It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And he says, I love this. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in my eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Yeah, right? So what you don't know is, it's unclear. Did the Lord close Michal's womb? Or more likely, did, from that moment on, did David keep her in his house, but never again engage in relations with her? He iced her out. And it's that last line, which I I want to read to you in the New Living. I want to focus on. He says, yes, David says, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. See, here's what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is growing in his understanding of God's holiness and presence. In the early parts, David doesn't take the rules too seriously. We can throw it on an ark. I mean, don't you, can't you hear David saying, 
gosh, I don't want to make, this is what Kyle would say, I don't want to make you carry that on poles. That sounds exhausting. Let's just stick it on a cart. It'll be fine. It'll be, won't it just be easier if we stick it on a cart? You can't get too practical when it comes to the presence of God because really the prohibitions that God gives in regards to his presence are for our protection. For our protection. David's growing in his understanding of the presence of God. Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar who has a name I love to say out loud, Walter Brueggemann says this of this passage. He says, when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the whole community is put at risk. When people are no longer odd, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the whole community is put at risk. David, David lost his awe, he lost his respect, he lost his fear of the holiness of God. He doesn't think through the careful commands of Scripture, and the whole community is put at risk. And so David finally gets his head on straight. It only took like a guy dying to do it. He finally gets his head on straight. He goes back for the ark. And here's what's interesting to me. David's appreciation for the presence of God, David's respect and awe for the holiness of God, do not turn David sour and dour and reverent. David doesn't get all buttoned down. David doesn't tighten the straps. Instead, David's grasp of the holiness and presence of God the ferocity with which God defends his own honor, it turns into a celebration. It turns into a dance party. To use the phrase from our sermon at Christmas, it's not just a party, it's a partay. David is not solemn or sour or dour in the name of reverence. David becomes more joyful because Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And so this morning, I want us to reflect on the three postures of worship we see right here in 2 Samuel 6. I want to look at the three postures of worship. By the way, just a footnote to this. I, had to pre- I was assigned to preach this text my senior year at Bible college for a class. And here's what I love about Scripture. The, meaning of this core, the core meaning of this text is, is absolutely rigidly the same, and yet the application in this community versus that one is totally different, which just goes to show you that as you read the Bible more, it's not like I can read the Bible once and have it mastered. The more you read the Bible, the more you're mastered by it, right? And so you get down to these depths of it. But this morning, I want to reflect on these postures, and I want to, say, I want to put up some bumpers for our bowling games. So let's put up bumper number one, and bumper number one is... As you're listening to this next part, don't think about other people. Don't think about your don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your kids. Don't think about your friends. Don't think about I wish this person was here. Just think about you, and ask the question, Father, how are you trying to get my attention? How are you trying to get my attention, Lord? The other bumper to this is is I don't want to add more challenge and more rebuke to a text that carries plenty of that water for us. And so as I was putting this together in my head and, and putting it on paper. I really felt like Jesus kind of come alongside and say, let's double down on invitation. doesn't mean I'm, this text isn't going to smack you around a little bit, but I don't want to add rebuke where the text does plenty of that because here's what I want you to know. Here's what this text wants you to know. Dare I say, here's what God wants you to know today. He wants you to get comfortable in his presence. He wants you in worship to incline your heart toward him, not recline it away, but incline it toward him because he longs for you to know him the way he knows you. 
He longs to know the, you to know him, for you to know him the way that he knows you. He longs for you to experience the fullness of joy that is in his presence. The full, not, not, just, not like a lion's share of joy, not a buffet of joy, the fullness of joy that is found in his presence. The fullness of joy that is in his presence when we gather in this space to encounter him, to encounter him. And really what we see in this text are three postures toward worship. And, and the first is casual. Casual. Some of us approach worship casually. Just like Uzzah, just like the Israelites in the first part of this chapter. Because as the ark rocks back and forth and threatens to fall to the ground, Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark and he is struck dead. And immediately, immediately what rises up in us, what rises up in me at least, is this sense of injustice. God, the guy was just trying to help out. He was just trying to do you a favor. And then I think to myself, he wasn't even thinking. He acted reflexively. There it is. It's when we come into the presence of God without even thinking, reflexively. Now it's 1045, I should probably get in my car. Some of you like to play the risky game. It's 1002, it's 1102. You know what I'm saying? We come to church without thinking. We gauge in singing in a reflex or not at all as if it was an option, as if it was a matter of our comfort. And the whole time we miss the heart of worship. We engage with worship casually when we come late, when we leave early, when we text our way through the gathering as if the king of the universe wasn't in the room with us. Hang on, God, this text is more important than you. American evangelicalism is the, the, the tradition in which we find ourselves. American evangelicalism. And one of its hallmarks is to, theologically, is to emphasize, and I think this is an important contribution, by the way, it emphasizes a personal relationship with Jesus. It emphasizes that every person, every single person has to decide for themselves what to do with the person of Jesus. You have to decide what you are going to do with the person of Jesus. But here's, if we're not careful, here's what happens. A personal relationship with Jesus becomes a presumptuous relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus becomes a presumptuous relationship with Jesus. So I can be casual, I can check in, I can check out, and I can presume, Scripture says, on the richness and the kindness of his forbearance. We get casual. Some of us aren't casual, some of us have contempt. And by the way, I would bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that in every church in America today, all three of these postures are present. Contempt is the next one. Because in McCall, we see this contempt. It says she despises him in her heart. This contempt as she judges David for how he worships. Here, here's what's happening. The presence of God is in the midst of his people in a way that we only get little tiny glimpses of every once in a while at our church. Tell you what, when I was in Cuba, not to keep emphasizing this, but when I was there, here's what blew me away. First song in, more manifest presence of God than maybe, we, maybe every once in maybe about a month, we'll have a, we'll have a time of worship in the church here, and we'll just get the sense of like, God is here. There's awe and there's reverence there. We're halfway through the first song. Every worship song at service I was in in Cuba, it was right, we were already at that level, and it only got higher from there. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. McCall is experiencing the presence of God and she can't get her eyes off of David. 
See, contempt in worship is what happens when we have our eyes on the worshiper, or dare I say the worship style, instead of the object of our worship. There's contempt. So we see somebody raise their hands, somebody kneel, somebody use their body, and we think that's weird. That is low-level contempt. That's low-level contempt. Um, You know, here's the thing that happens is, you know, American Christianity for about the last 50 years has been marked by this contempt for worship style. And so you get the charismatics or the more contemporary churches that do the praise songs and they raise their hands and they're singing and and they look at people who sing hymns or maybe who just sing a little bit more formal songs and we think they're heartless. We think I'm somehow better than those people. But then you come over to this camp, and by the way, I've been a part of all of these. Uh, You come over to this camp when it's all about the Bible and it's all about Scripture, and we're going to think clearly. And we look at those people, and while they're raising their hands and they're closing their eyes and they're singing their praise choruses, uh, we think they're brainless. Someone may or may not have said in my hearing that people who close their eyes and raise their hands while singing praise choruses are contributing to the dumbing down of America. And so we get in this fight back and forth of you're heartless and you're brainless, and here's the reality. When we obsess about the style of worship, we start worshiping the style of worship instead of the object of our worship. And when we engage with worship in terms of I like and I don't like, we show contempt for God's presence. We show contempt for God's presence. Maturity in worship is not found in style. Maturity of worship isn't found in style because people in the more traditional camp, whether it's hymns or just very Bible churchy or whatever, will kind of imply of people singing praise songs, which frankly are typically the songs that we tend to sing here more than not. People tend to imply that they're not getting the full message. And so we got to go back to this style because that's mature thing. And here's the reality. Maturity in worship is not found in style. Maturity in worship is found in the posture of the heart. Maturity in worship is found not in the style, but in the posture of a heart. Am I leaning in or am I leaning away? What I love about Steph's parents is um, they're in the fourth quarter of life. And they have, been, they have lived the transition of American worship. When they first started going to church, it was hymns and hymnals and organs. And they can remember when, do you remember um, projectors in elementary school? that have the transparencies, they can remember when we started putting transparencies on a projector, maybe with a piano. This is pre-computers, right? It's great, I love this. Um, they, can remember, they can remember when guitar eked its way into worship. They can remember when <gasps> drums became a part of worship. They can remember this whole movement. And, and what I love about my dad-in-law who plays guitar is he's just as quick to find, a, find music for like a hymn as he is, uh, is he worthy? The song that we just did when we got to South Dakota this summer, their church just did this, and he was playing it all the time. He was playing it nonstop. And for him and for my mom-in-law, the reality of their journey of worship is that they have matured not by insisting on a style, but with any song that they are presented with inclining their hearts to God. It's easy to worship the style instead of the Lord. So you see casual, you see contempt, and then you see celebration. I was so excited that I came up with three C words. I'm not even going to lie to you. (laughs) Okay. And that the C word was in the text. That's great. Celebration. Here's what we see in David. Here's what we see in David. We see a David celebration. 
celebration in the presence of God because he is so captivated, which was almost the C word I used, captivated by the character of God, his holiness included, the anger that burst out, but also his steadfast love and his mercy and his justice and his faithfulness and his kindness. And he sees all of that and he can't help but use his lungs and his mouth and his whole body to make God bigger. Because for David, it is not about the style. It is not about his convenience. It is about nothing short of the presence of God. And if you want to see revival happen on a large scale in our nation, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to happen when we have a Christian president. Because we've got about six of those and we haven't seemed to move the needle at all. It is going to happen when God's people are absolutely dedicated to, hungry for, and will settle for nothing less than the presence of God, period. That's revival. That's renewal. And here's the thing about these other postures. You only see a hunger for the presence of God and a recognition for the presence of God in celebration. In the casual, in the contempt, it's about what I get out of it. It's about what I like. It's about what works for me. In celebration, it is nothing short of the presence of God, period, end of story. It's the presence of God in which there's fullness of joy. In which there is fullness of joy. God's desire for you this morning is for you to experience his presence, his presence. The longer you've been a Christian, the more you come to hunger for that, actually. And I meet a lot of Christians who out of that hunger just jump from church to church to church hoping they can find it. And the reality is it's an in them problem, not an out there problem, Right? There's an interior work that has to happen for us to be hungry for the presence of God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So how do we incline our hearts in the presence of God? How do we incline our hearts in the presence of God? I have three thoughts this morning. One has to do with a discipline of preparation. One has to do with a discipline of preparation. And here's what that means. Sunday begins on Saturday. Sunday begins on Saturday. Uh, it means I am at my best, not only like, quote unquote, for lack of a better word, professionally, right? I'm at my best even engaging with the Lord in this time and in my morning when on Saturday night I decide what I'm going to wear the next day and the clothes are ironed and they're laid out. When Jack's clothes are ironed or whatever and ready and laid, not ironed, laid out. <laughs> what happened there? I don't know. I've ironed one of his shirts once. It was for his baptism. So we had to have a look good for the pictures. So. When my clothes are laid out, when his diaper bag is ready, when I know there's gas in the car, when I've gone and I've set the timer on the coffee pot so that when I wake up to put the finishing touches on the sermon, it's ready to go. I'm ready, for, I'm ready to encounter the presence of God when I come in here, when, when I come in here warmed up. Warmed up. You know, I've, you have a snowblower and you got to kind of pull that cord a little bit to make the engine warm so it turns over. Before you run a marathon, it's wise to sprint. Uh, excuse me, before you sprint, it's wise to warm up. And so on my way to Grace Church in between these campuses, most often I'm listening to worship music. I'm praying for our time and our gathering. On Saturday night, we're trying to make it a discipline. We're at about fifth, we're about five for ten. Um, where we're praying over you and over this time and over our friends and our siblings at Grace and over that time so that God's presence would move. It's got to be a discipline of preparation, not 
um, I'm going to do that extra thing that I'm just going to try to get this extra thing done before we leave the house, and then now we're 15 minutes late. And, and, and not, I'm going to schedule my next thing really, really tight up on when worship ends so that I have to skate out. Um, not, um, I'm going to leave my phone on full blast and just keep getting buzzes. I'm going to silence my phone. I'm going to rearrange my morning. It, the, it, the preparation is making your whole day revolve around this one hour, not this one hour revolve around your whole day. That's preparation. There's a discipline of preparation, and then there is a discipline to kill efficiency, which actually might even be described as killing hurry. But, but here's what I'm guilty of. Here's what Steph's guilty of is, um, oh, there's all these people that I meant to connect with and check in on, and I have to ask this person that, and I know I'll see them Sunday, and it would just be easier for me. It would just be more efficient if I wait until I see them on Sunday, and then I can ask them. What I'm saying is, we have six days of the week to move the business of the organization forward. Can we say one day, can we set aside one day, a Sabbath day, and make it holy by not um, running in with all of these efficiency things? And by the way, that's hard. That's hard when coffee needs to be made and worship needs to be practiced. It's, coffee when, it, it's difficult when the altar needs to be set up and communion stuff needs to be bought and all those kinds of things. It is a needle to thread. But I think there might be a way for us to get in the pocket where we're living in the presence of God and out of that making Sunday morning happen instead of running around like a bunch of chickens with our head cut off, hoping that the coffee is made before everybody else walks in the door. There's got to be a way to do that. A part of it has to do with what preparation and what killing of efficiency that we have to do. And then I would throw out too, it's good, how do we get into the presence of God? It's good to use our bodies. Um, when we get to heaven, we will be in the minority of people who stand like this while we're singing. I was preaching at a little church called Santa Fe, and by little it was a pretty big church for Cuba. And I said to them, okay, here's the deal, y'all. We get to heaven, we're going to spend the first 10,000 years on our faces. I love you guys. Don't feel judged. Rough Sunday to have to leave early. Okay, love you. Bye. Just naming it in the room. You're good. Bye. See you next time. Okay. Just saying. I think it might be better to lean in. They might never come back. Sorry. I'm doing your wedding, so you have to. Bye. Okay. We're having fun today. You're dying inside, aren't you? <laughs> yes, Randy's melting. Okay. What were we talking about? Oh, using our bodies. So I said to them, I said to our, I said, friends, listen, we're going to get to heaven. We're going to spend the first 10,000 years on our faces. We're going to get up and first order of business is, can you teach us all to dance so we don't look stupid for eternity? There is value to using our bodies. And uh, let me just, let me just read you a few passages of scripture, Okay. I don't want to manipulate, I don't want to corner, I don't want to push. I'm just trying to open the door. Psalm 63, verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 88, verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Psalm 119, verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. 
Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 134, verse 2. I stretch out my hands to you. My, full, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Psalm 143, verse 6. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. 2 Chronicles 6.12 at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, Ezra 9.5. Let us lift up our hands and our hearts to God in heaven. Lamentations 3.41. 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, My roommate, Josh, at Moody, I may have told you this story, um, got this conviction under him that was kind of nerdy. It was a particularly Bible college way to rebel. There's a song that we would sing a lot in chapel in that year, and it had a bridge that said, lift my hands and spin around. And he would say, do you notice that we're all a room full of people, all 850 of us, saying at a wall, I lift my hands and spin around without moving? Do you realize how insane that looks? So Josh began to either do whatever with his body that the song said. If it said bow, he bowed. If it said kneel, he knelt. If it said raise your hands, he raised his hands. If it said shout, he sang louder. And if he wasn't going to do those things, he didn't sing the words. And I think, to, I think now that Josh may have been the most biblical. Because I think Josh was pointing out that what we do with our bodies matters. Um, that there is more to our faith than our head and our heart, but that we have these bodies that matter, that matter. I'm going to pray. I'm going to let Steph lead response time, and God be with you if you're trying to leave early. Okay. <laughs> Jesus, you are gracious. Everybody, like, moved in this very particular way that said, I'm not leaving. And um, <laughs> Jesus, we, we love you. And we want you to be bigger in our lives. And so, uh, by your grace, help us to see you. Help, help us so that you would become bigger in our imaginations and in our affections, in our thoughts, and yeah, in our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.